I want to express my appreciation to my beloved colleague John Akers for leading us in the first part of worship and hope that you will be mindful of those who have been mentioned in prayer. Merit Montreat is such a wonderful and caring community and friends are so precious at a time like this. Now then, if you have your bulletin and can read the print, uh, I'll, uh, I'll read the scripture with you. Uh, this is, last week I got some new glasses after the service. <laughs> it was a, literally a guy came here who helps me out with glasses and he said I needed them uh, because the, uh, this is a triple thing. So if I walk down the steps funny, you'll know why. Uh, the, um, um, this passage of scripture follows on the lesson that we had last week. I want to tell you how it ties into Advent season. This season of the year is, as John alluded to in his remarks and before the prayer, is not only the time in which we consider the first coming of Christ, but traditionally, the, the first Sunday in Advent also points us to our responsibilities on the Day of Judgment because the uh, uh, life and time that we have, uh, God holds us responsible for it. And with mercy in the coming of the Savior, he has dealt with us. But also with this great mercy, as with all blessings, there come responsibilities. And uh, we will be responsible for what we have done with our knowledge of the coming of the Savior and with our responsibility for carrying out his work in the world. And so it's appropriate during seasons such as this that the parable which continues on the lesson of last week in which uh, our Lord uh, uh, chided uh, the children of light, those who were his followers, for not making wiser and better, better use of their time and their money and their opportunities for him. And he told the story of a, a very tricky uh, man who had made clever use of his time when he had been fired. And uh, then the uh, master in that story, not Jesus, but the master of that steward, was caught uh, by this surprising cunningness of that shrewd steward who worked for him. And uh, uh, there's a little humor, a little irony in that story. But we are to learn from that, to make good use of our time. Uh, now, when he had finished this, where there were Pharisees present, and usually Pharisees were people who were well healed financially. And they really booed and scorned and hooted at Jesus because he had spoken uh, of money in the way he did. They loved money. But they could not uh, see the lesson that Jesus was making from the use of money. And so Jesus tells this story uh, to illustrate a lesson he wants us to learn and the lesson which he wanted them to learn. So look at uh, Luke 16, verse 19 following. This is the King James translation. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. 
And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldst send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this time of the year, for all of the special blessings that come to so many of us when we recount and recall wonderful experiences with thee and with those whom we love. And yet for this, this season of the year is a hard time for many. And we pray that you will prevent the evil one from stealing away the joy that ought to be ours when we recall the most remarkable gift ever given to man, the incarnation of your blessed Son. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have promised not only to bring us salvation in the world to come, but also to save us in the trials and the testings that we go through in life. We thank you for that marvelous promise that God is with us and that you are bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh and you know the tests which we face. We are thankful that you receive the gifts which we offer and we ask that they may be supervised and guided by you to do much good and to bring relief and help and blessing to many people. Receive our gifts and the gift of our devotions and also grant that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts may be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Let me explain while the children are walking away that the uh, I'm not got good enough memory to be a very good liturgist. I would forget what color to put out and uh, what color robe to wear. I'd do good to get this one on. Uh, but the purple, I know the meaning of. That's what we put on during the season called Lent, which is a time in which we're supposed to take our faith more seriously. We ought to take it seriously all the year around. Uh, but uh, at the season of Lent, the purple is put there because we remember the sufferings of Christ. In the season of Advent, it is placed out because we remember the humility 
of the Son of God in coming into this world. And uh, I went back and looked into one of my dictionaries to, for uh, a definition of Advent, the liturgical season of preparation for Christmas. It thus marks the start of the, of the Christian year. And it serves also to complete the cycle by drawing attention to Christ's second coming to judge the world. Historically, this season followed the development of the parallel one for the preparation of Easter known as Lent. Accordingly, Advent grew in the East and in parts of Western Europe to a full six weeks in length. In the late fifth century in France, uh, a fast began on St. Martin's Day. The reason I'm smiling is St. Martin's Day is November the 11th. And guess who was born on that day? Martin Luther. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he got the name St. Martin. Uh, there were so many saints that they had a saint for every day of the year, and so if you had a baby that was born on that saint's day, you usually gave him the name of that saint. So that's where Martin Luther got his name. Uh, that, but there is no evidence from Advent at Rome until the time of Gregory the Great, which was a hundred years later, when it contained only four weeks. That's what those of us who usually follow a sort of modified version of it nor was the period regarded as a time of fasting there. In fact, the origin of the feast in the East seems to have been, as in Lent, a preparation for baptism. In this case, at Epiphany. I don't know how many times I have people ask me every year what the word Epiphany means. Uh, it, it means appearing, the coming of the Lord. Actually, it had to do with the coming of the wise men when they gave their uh, tribute to the Lord. So that's your little lesson in church history. <laughs> And now then I want to uh, uh, pick up this uh, theme. Uh, Christ has made it perfectly clear in the record of the gospel that he is coming again. In fact, there are so many verses in scripture that deal with this that if you were to go through the New Testament and cut out the verses that deal with the second coming of Christ, you would simply shred the New Testament. It wouldn't make any sense. Uh, we know that he is coming again. Uh, we do not know the time, and he makes that plain. We know that it's going to be sudden. He said it would be like the flash of lightning out of the east streaking across the sky to the west. Uh, we, he also compared it to the time of Noah, that just as people were surprised and uh, scoffed and the flood came upon them suddenly, so would his second coming be that way. He'll come back for a specific purpose. And that purpose will be to pronounce the judgment of God. That's why the parable that we've read this morning and we'll look into uh, is so important for us to consider. Uh, we, and Paul, by the way, states very plainly, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. If this is important to remember when we see things go so terribly wrong in life because we are apt to think that this life is all there is to it. And so that would drive us to the madness of despair. But if we know that one day God himself will make things like they should be and right things, then we can be comforted. Uh, if you could persuade uh, Lazarus that there was not going to be any judgment at which things would not be made right, instead of lying out there at that rich man's gate, I think he would have gotten up and gone inside and flung the rich man out the window and taken what he wanted to eat. Uh, but we know that uh, there is order and that God will make things right, and so we trust in him. 
Uh, John, in the book of Revelation, says, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And this is the way it'll be. And on that day, differences in class or condition or color will make no difference at all. During the uh, World War II, uh, there was a, an account of a soldier who had a man who came to assist him when he was wounded. And the man uh, looked over him, and it's a thing in the military that you always seek name, rank, and serial number. And the poor soldier replied at, at the question about rank, uh, never mind about rank. I'll soon be going where rank, where there is no rank. And that's a good thing to recall. The small and the great, the humble and the mighty will stand together without the trappings of influence or power and without the distinctions of the positions that people in this life place upon them. Then it comes to bear upon me that I'm always late for appointment. But this is one appointment I'll keep, and it's one appointment you'll keep. Uh, whether you like it or not, whether you want to or not, whether you even believe it or not, you'll keep this one. It's an appointment with God when Christ comes again. And we won't be able to hide anything from Christ. That's another thing that's sobering about this time of the year. You can't hide anything from the Lord. He knows it all. You, you might as well take it all out and put it in the open. He knows all the facts about you, and he knows all the facts about me. It's very important to remember that he is an auditor who is infinitely wise, but he also is an, order, an auditor of infinite love, and he'll audit the books, and uh, he will audit them carefully but he will audit them with that wisdom and that love uh, which does not make any mistakes and, and which will be uh, absolutely fair in it. There are people who tell me when we think about the second coming and the judgment, I, I don't know how many times I go when someone dies and they say he lived a full life. Well, what is a full life? I looked at a portrait before I came out here this morning of Sandy Ford. Uh, Leighton Ford's son who died at Chapel Hill after a heart operation uh, just a couple of years ago. And I thought about him and the tremendous ministry that still goes on through young people who are financed from a Sandy Ford scholarship fund. Uh, the Lord has his own concepts, his own time uh, schedule and it's not like our time he does not reckon time as we do and his definition of life is in a deeper wider better dimension than what we think of when we think of life that's a big thing for us to remember and so now uh, with that introduction about uh, judgment and about the second coming I want to go to the parable that Jesus told a certain rich man. Uh, we are told about his clothing, and we're told, some, told about how he ate uh, purple and fine linen. Now, probably today, most of us have clothes that are better than what the rich man had. He fared sumptuously every day. Uh, this meant that there was probably a banquet every day or something close akin to it. 
And then, of course, we're told about this beggar, and this is interesting, named Lazarus. The rich man is not named. Uh, we speak of him often as Dives, but Dives is just Latin for rich man. And uh, uh, this rich man has Lazarus at his gate, and uh, his condition is sharply contrasted to the rich man. Uh, he is not well and healthy. He is not faring sumptuously every day. He is full of sores. He has no doctors to attend to him. He only has dogs that come and lick at his sores, which evidently make his life more miserable for him. Uh, the dogs in eastern cities were not pets such as we know, but scavengers who uh, go up and down the streets. So it's a very terrifying situation. When we read in the King James that he desired to be fed from the, the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table, that's a little bit misleading. The rich people would feast, but they did not have serviettes or, or napkins such as we have today, but they took big, uh, a big uh, piece of bread and they would wipe the grease from their fingers with these pieces of bread and then throw it away. And so if you got a chunk of that bread with that grease on it, it was pretty good food. And so Lazarus' friends took him where he would be placed, where he could get some bigger chunks of food, uh, this uh, bread that was used to wipe away the grease from the fingers of the rich man. And uh, so evidently that's why they put him at his... Uh, at the rich man's gate. And uh, here, a, a friend pointed out to me last night a very important point, and that is the inattention of this rich man to Lazarus. It's hard, as John Ellington told us on Thanksgiving Day, to look at those photographs from Ethiopia and think of the starving uh, millions of people there. It's hard to think about all those people from Haiti. The man who grows these poinsettias has a, a project to help feed people in Haiti because he was so moved when he saw a little, uh, when he was throwing out uh, the scraps from his table one night and uh, uh, noticed that the black servant who waited on their table took the scraps from the table and walked down the road instead of putting them in a container near the house. He, he, he walked at a distance and saw the black servant throw the scraps uh, out at a certain spot. And then out of the bushes came little black children picking up those scraps. And he said when he saw a little girl grab at a chicken bone which he had eaten on and hungrily eat at that bone and start off delighted that she had this to eat, that his heart was overwhelmed. And that started him in his uh, project called Double Harvest uh, to try to feed the hungry in Haiti. Uh, this is something that uh, this rich man did not do. He would not allow himself to suffer by looking at the plight of Lazarus. He would not cast his eyes upon him. And if you remember in the account of the judgment in Matthew 25, at that last day, Jesus said, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungry? And you see, uh, it's because we avert our eyes, we do not wish to look. 
because if we do look, then our hearts will be affected like this man's heart was, and we will want to do something about it. And that's an important part for us to remember. It can be fatal not to pay attention uh, to needs that exist, uh, whether it be our health, or whether it be uh, what's going on in the world, or whether it be when we walk across the street. If we don't pay attention, we may be hit by a car. Uh, we need to pay attention uh, to the needs of others is what this is speaking very loudly to. It came to pass that the beggar died. Uh, I love the role that angels have here and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Uh, we're going to be singing about angels. We were already sung about them this morning when we sung, uh, we sing a song of Bethlehem and angels watching there. Angels play a very important role in Scripture. You see them all the way from Genesis to the book of Revelation. And the angels carried uh, Lazarus uh, to Abraham's bosom. That's a quaint King James way of putting it, but it's an excellent way. Do you remember the night in which our Lord was betrayed? That that disciple whom he loved leaned upon his bosom? What does that mean? It shows a, a comradeship or a fellowship, a closeness uh, that lends strength, as if someone should come and embrace you uh, in a time of need or in a time of joy. Uh, it's a fellowship that's there. And, and poor Lazarus, though he had been uh, miserably treated in this life, he goes to Abraham's bosom. Abraham is the father of the faithful. And for these Pharisees, nothing could be a greater distinction than to be embraced by Abraham. I can remember once when a secret service agent started to shoo me away from the president. And I had known him and had worked for him, for him as a boy. And the president just held out his arm like this. And the secret service guy went away. And when, the, when I got over, the president pulled me out. He was a great puller and he pulled me over. Uh, to him and started trying to tell me something. And then this enhanced my prestige with the people who were watching. There were a couple of people at that uh, banquet who didn't even speak to me when I came in, who after it came running around saying, where did you know him? Uh, that's the way it sometimes works. Well, here, Abraham's bosom means the fellowship uh, with God, the father of the faithful, far more important than any earthling could ever uh, speak of. The rich man also died and he was buried. They must have had a big funeral. And a lot of people went there. Who wants to be the richest man in the cemetery? <laughs> it's not a very great distinction, is it? And it says in hell he lift up his eyes. Now I don't need to go into all the talk about Sheol and Gehenna and the other things that spare it. Just stick with it. And in hell he lift up his eyes. Now here again, eyes come into play. This uh, rich man who had not been willing to take his eyes and look at Lazarus who was at his gate now sees Lazarus afar off and sees him in Abraham's bosom. And I think he still thinks that he can sort of command Lazarus. And he cried out to Father Abraham, 
Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Uh, hell is not a place of, uh, uh, without its suffering. Now, I know that there are people who've come along saying, oh, the lurid descriptions in the past of hell, fire, and damnation were so terrible. You don't hear many sermons about that, and you know you don't. Not nearly enough. I've had people say to me, well, there are people in insane asylums because they've heard about hell. There are a whole lot more there because they haven't heard about it. Well, they would have lived better lives and wouldn't have been into some of the dissolute states that many people get into. Nobody ever points that out. It can be mentally healthy two ways. Pain is a... a is something that's going to be in life and it plants the flagpole of truth into our existence. And to try to rule out the unpleasant fact of hell is just foolish. Uh, it's foolish in dealing with your children, it's foolish in dealing with adults or with anyone else. Uh, and it's very solemn to remember that the person who spoke the most about hell is who? Jesus himself. Who could be more loving more thoughtful, and more concerned with the impressions that you gain of God and his dealings with men than the Lord Jesus himself. That being true, then it ill behooves any of us to play down the role which he gives to uh, hell and judgment in our thinking. And so it's here, and it's here for a good reason. It's here so that we will be advised against the uh, loose uh, and unwise use of the opportunity that we have in this life. But Abraham said to this man, son, remember. That's interesting, son, remember. That means that in the life after death there must be memory. Son, remember. Memories can do terrible things to you. That's one reason this is such a painful time of the year for someone. If you get sick just at Thanksgiving, if Leighton's son died the day after Thanksgiving, uh, that, that makes every Thanksgiving that comes up bring back a memory of that. I talked to a person uh, year after year whose husband walked out and that led to a divorce on Christmas Day. And every Christmas Day that came back to haunt that particular individual. Uh, the painful memories that can come at that time, but we must not let Satan steal away the great joy which God means to bring to us at this time of the year. But Abraham said, Son, remember. Remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. I should point out at this point that this man is not in hell, uh, because he did evil. He is in hell because he didn't do anything. He was inattentive and indifferent to the needs of others. And God judges him. His life was not under the lordship of God, nor under the uh, lordship that God would have given to him. And so his rebellion uh, continues on. When I think of this and try to make it relevant to what we're doing today, I, I 
saw the news last week and the labor dispute that was going on in Great Britain, the fighting and the trouble that comes there. The founder of the British Labor Party's name, uh, Labor Party was named Care Hardy, K-E-I-R, Care is his first name, H-A-R-D-I-E. I did work at the University of Glasgow Library on the influence of North American evangelists on church life and social organizations in Great Britain. And it was a great surprise to me to find that Care Hardy had become a Christian under the influence of Dwight L. Moody, the American evangelist. And it interested me further because I was studying uh, the different schools of economy and thought that when Trotsky, the great communist, came to England and tried to enlist Care Hardy into the cause of communism that he refused and would have nothing to do with communism. And Trotsky was appalled because there was no blood and thunder and revolution in the sense that uh, uh, Trotsky wanted to bring it about. And the reason was that Care Hardy was a Christian. He was a Christian who loved Jesus Christ and as a result of his love for Jesus Christ put that into his politics and founded a party so that they could oppose uh, the unfair exploitation of labor people. And when he was a little boy, he had been through awful circumstances. Let me just read you a little bit of the research that I did on him. He was an illegitimate child himself. His father was a coal miner who refused to acknowledge him as his son. This is Care Hardy. Finally, the man who whom his mother lived with, David Hardy, gave him his name. Then they took the little child to Glasgow. There they lived in a two-room flat, a little apartment. One of the 18 families in a tenement house where five families shared a drafty corridor and one single bathroom. David Hardy, his stepfather, was by turns a sailor, a carpenter, and a coal miner. When he was working, there was bread and jam and warm tea and plenty of sugar and even a whole leg for Sunday. But when an accident or unemployment intervened, the odds and ends of the household would disappear from the dresser and go to the pawn shop. There would be whole days when there would be no food in the house. Kara Hardy's mother was a bright personality, but it would turn bitter in times like this. He went to work as a child, working at the age of eight, I don't know how many of these little children we saw not uh, much younger than eight this morning. But think of that as a child of eight working. Later he was a, a, a riveter's boy in a shipyard. They paid him four shillings and six pence a week. But there were so many little children that died of accidents that his mother made him quit that. And he had to take a job uh, in which he he was a delivery boy for a baker, and the baker was a Presbyterian elder, a very pious Presbyterian elder. Listen to this description of the night that his young brother 
uh, that when the, the, the little baby that was born to his family had died, Kara Hardy had been up half the night and he reached the bakery shop where he worked. He was 11 years old now. He was soaked by rain and he came without breakfast. He was a half hour late. He was warned that day, but when the same thing happened the next day, the boss, now this this pious Presbyterian elder, interrupted his family prayers to fire him. Fifty years later, Kara Hardy, as an old man, wrote these words in his diary in front of the master, that is his, his boss, there was a very wonderful-looking coffee boiler in a great glass bowl in which the coffee was bubbling. The table was loaded with delicacies. My master looked at me and said, Boy, this is the second morning that you've been late. My customers quit me if they are kept waiting for their hot breakfast rolls. Therefore, I dismiss you. And to make you more careful in the future, I've decided to fine you a week's wages. Now you may go. I wanted to speak to him and to explain about my home, but a servant took me by the arm and led me downstairs. I knew that my, my mother was waiting for my wages. As the afternoon was drawing to a close, I had to go home and tell her what had happened. It seemed like the final blow. That night the baby was born and the sun arose on the first Sunday of January 1867 over the two rooms where there was neither a fire to keep warm nor food in our stomachs. The memory of these early days abides with me and makes me doubt the sincerity of those who make a pretense in their prayers. Now this man became a Christian care hardy but it certainly wasn't because of that Presbyterian elder the man could have helped him at a particular time, and he did not help him. And so Jesus' Jesus' story here is one, by the way, we call it a parable, but the scriptures don't call it a parable. But it's something that we ought to remember. Notice this. Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest good gifts. This doesn't mean that we go to held because we've had a good time here, a bad time as far as money is concerned. We go to heaven or to hell because of what we do with Jesus Christ as Lord. But this is meant to impress upon us that we are to make the very best use of the time. Beside all this, all, all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, and neither can they pass up to us that would come from thence. Now look, then he said, I pray you, Father, that thou would send me to my brothers, to my father's house, for I have five brethren, must have been a very wealthy household, that they may testify to them, lest they also come to this place. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. In other words, if Moses and the prophets and the teachings of God and the Bible and all that Amos and Hosea have to say about the responsibilities that we have uh, to the poor, 
If these have not impressed this rich man Diabetes, neither would he be impressed though one came back from the dead. They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear him. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one should be raised from the dead. And you know that worked out that way, didn't it? When Lazarus, another man by that name, was raised from the dead, the Pharisees, these people to whom Jesus was speaking here, wanted to kill him and Jesus. And then when Jesus was raised from the dead, they still didn't want to hear him. It means that we can become so hardened. If you have a chance to see a Christmas carol by Charles Dickens this year, you can see this in Ebenezer Scrooge. What idolatry uh, can be woven into material possessions? And this is the lesson that this is meant to convey to us so that with our time, we will make the best use of it and make it for the Lord. Because I'm interested in gardens and saw a beautiful one the other day, I guess this story appealed to me, and when I think of the second coming and of Advent, it's especially meaningful. There was a very famous garden in England. And one day a tourist came to look at it, and a friendly old gentleman opened the gate and showed him into the grounds, which were immaculate. He said to the gardener, how long have you been here? And the gardener said, 24 years. And the tourist said, does the owner come here very often to enjoy the gardens? He said, no, I don't think he's been here in 12 years. And the tourist was puzzled, and he asked him another question, does the owner write to you? And he said, yes, he writes regularly. He said, when do you expect him to come to visit you personally? And the gardener replied, he has never indicated in his letters just when he'll come. The visitor remarked, judging by the way you keep this garden, one would think you expected him to come tomorrow. And the gardener promptly corrected him by saying, today, sir, today.